Okay, so the three sisters I'm going to talk about today are probably the least well-known of all the uh, sisters talked about in this series. Some people may have heard of Mary Ledbetter, who was Mary Shackleton before uh, she got married. Um, but far few, fewer people, I suspect, will have heard of her two sisters, uh, Margaret, uh, known as Peggy in the family, and Sarah, known as Sally. But I'm going to use their, their more formal names. But I will occasionally refer to Sarah as Sally because there's another Sarah in the story and it gets a bit confusing. Okay, so paradoxically, although these three women are probably the least well known in the series, they are also, I think, by far the best uh, documented because Mary kept a journal or a diary from the age of 11 um, until shortly before her death at the age of 68 in 1826. And her diary is, as far as I know, the longest and most detailed diary of any Irish woman in 18th century Ireland. And I, I, I would even say that it's probably the longest and most detailed diary of any Irish woman in the 19th century, as I don't know of any equivalent um, of a, a woman who kept up a diary in such a detailed way for such a sustained period of time. More typical of diaries is that kept by uh, Mary's sister, Sarah, because she kept a journal when she was a young teenage girl, and then she stopped it, and then she um, began a journal again for brief periods um, when she was traveling as a companion uh, with the visiting minister for the Quakers um, in the 1780s and 1790s. But I'll come back to that. And in addition to other journals, to the two journals, there is a vast amount of correspondence between the sisters and also between um, them and other members of their family. This correspondence is now scattered across um, a variety of archives, and I haven't by any means looked at all of it. Uh, some of it is in the Quaker Historical Library here in Dublin. Um, some of it is in the National Library in Dublin, but there's also um, material in the United States. And Sarah's journal, for example, is in the library of the University of Southern California. So through these journals and, and this uh, collection of letters, we can trace the lives of these sisters from at least their teenage years through their adult life and into old age. Um, today, I want to focus on three aspects of their lives. Firstly, their lives as young teenagers in the village of Ballytor, County Kildare, where they lived. And then I want to say something about their experience as single uh, women and a little bit about, uh, but not so much as their experiences as married women. And then finally, I want to look at Mary uh, Ledbetter, um, her career as she becomes Mary Ledbetter when she marries William Ledbetter. Um, I want to look at her career, how she emerged as a best-selling author in her own lifetime. I should say, too, that I know most about Ma Mary and Sarah, primarily because uh, 
we have the journals and a little bit less about Margaret, um, because mainly because I haven't read all of the letters by her as yet. So I will be focusing more on Mary and Sarah, but I will bring in Margaret. Okay, my primary interest in exploring the lives of these women is to really to see how they engaged with the Quaker framework within which they lived. Because some of you may know the Society of Friends has really received what you might call a very favorable press from historians of women because they've praised the oops, uh, sorry, it's gone backwards. Sorry, yeah. They've praised the um, the gender equality um, within Quaker religious beliefs because the Quakers from their foundation in the mid-17th century emphasized the spiritual equality of men and women. The administration of the Quaker organization also included separate women's meetings, uh, which historians of women have also praised as creating an official role for women within the, uh, within the church. The women's meetings met regularly and were responsible for overseeing things like uh, marriage arrangements within the Quaker community. They also had a role in um, supervising or overseeing the behavior or conduct of individuals to ensure that they were following or adhering to the fairly strict code of conduct that the Society of Friends imposed on its members. So the watchword was plain. Members should live in plain houses without too much unnecessary ornamentation. They should avoid, for example, expensive furniture in their houses, and they should avoid um, decorating their houses with portraits and paintings. And that's the reason why, unlike previous speakers, I have no nice portraits or paintings to show you of the women that I'm talking about. Playing music was also a frivolous activity. Personal dress um, was to be plain, a regulation which the mother of the Shackleton sisters insisted on following for her daughters, much to their sorrow um, and at times embarrassment. Even in old age, Mary Ledbetter remembered with regret her mother's insistence or her mother's insistence that they follow the Quaker rules on a strict form of plain dress. The regulations of the society also advised um, members only to read uh, Quaker authored literature, which meant that for young girls, again, like the Shackletons, romantic novels, which were becoming increasingly popular in 18th century Ireland, were prohibited and they were not supposed to, uh, to read such literature. So in other words, the women's meeting kept a watchful eye over uh, the, the following of the rules or the way in which the rules were observed in their local communities. And this gives women a formal role and a status and authority within the church, which was unusual in 18th century society. There was no equivalent of the women's meetings in any of the other Christian denominations, um, such as Catholicism, Anglicanism, or even in the other dissenting uh, churches, such as Presbyterianism or Methodism, 
which did give women a certain role, but not to the same extent um, as the Society of Friends. Quaker women could also take on the role of visiting minister, by which they would travel around um, to other Quaker and non-Quaker communities, and they would preach in public and explain Quaker beliefs in the hope of winning more adherence. So in other words, women through their engagement with the women's meetings and their role as traveling ministers had a strong public profile um, in the Quaker community. So what I'm interested in doing is looking at how the, the Shackleton sisters engaged with this Quaker world. So when we first encounter um, the three sisters, they are living in their aunt's house in Ballytor in County Kildare. Sarah is nine years of age. Um, Mary is 11, as I say, when she starts her, her journal. And Margaret um, um, is, is older. Um, she's 19 years of age. So the reason for the difference in age is that Richard Shackleton, their father, married twice. Um, by his first wife, he had four children, including Margaret. And then she died, uh, Elizabeth Fuller died in childbirth with their fourth child and their second son. Um, and, and, and Henry, um, their last son, died young, is what Mary Ledbetter says. But I, I haven't established how young he was. And then um, Richard married again, and he married a woman called Elizabeth Carlton. And he and Elizabeth had two children, Mary and Sarah. So that's part of the reason for the, the, the large age gap between the three sisters. There is another sister, Deborah, um, whom I haven't yet focused on, um, but I'm not consciously leaving her out. I just haven't um, done the research on her as yet. Um, Elizabeth Carlton and Richard ran the famous um, Bally, Ballytor School, um, and Elizabeth helped her husband with the school. The school was mainly for boys. Okay, I have a picture. This is a picture from the County Kildare Library website, uh, a sketch of the school. It was a boys' school, and it was a secondary boys' school because they came from about the age of 11 or 12, and it prepared them for their future careers. Many of them went on to study at Trinity College, became, some of them indeed became fellows at Trinity, some of them went into the army, some of them went into the Irish civil administration. So in other words, many of these boys in the school were not Quakers. They were mainly members of the, uh, of the Church of Ireland. And some of the boys lodged with the Shackletons in what were called, or as what were called, parlor borders. Um, and they lodged with Richard and Elizabeth. And then the other boys lodged as parlor borders uh, in different houses around the village of Ballytor. So it seems to have been because Richard and Elizabeth were so busy with the school and its pupils that Mary, Sarah, and Margaret were moved from their mother's house uh, um, to, their to her sister's house. Um, Deborah uh, Carlton moved to Ballytor with her mother um, when Elizabeth got married to Richard. Um, she was a single woman um, who never married, um, and she looked after Mary 
Sarah and Margaret. She also had living in her house um, some of the boys from the school. So she had these parlor boarders living in her house as well. So in other words, Deborah Carlton had really quite a household full of teenage boys and girls um, to care for. Mary and Sarah attended uh, the school in Ballytor and they sat in the same classes um, as the boys, uh, which meant unusually for the time the girls uh, learned Latin and they were taught uh, classical literature. Um, I found no reference to Margaret attending her father's school. Her older sister, Deborah, um, went to the Quaker school in Edenderry. And uh, I suspect that Margaret also uh, attended that school. But there seems to be no reference to her being at her father's school. But apart from going to school, Mary, as a young girl, when she begins her journal, she also records that she and her sisters attended the twice-weekly uh, Quaker meeting in the village. So the sisters are aware from a very early age of their Quaker membership and aware, too, of some of the restrictions that it imposed on their lives. But rather than feeling a need to adhere strictly to the Quaker regulations on being plain, the girls seemed often to be trying to bend the rules or to find ways around them. And they may have been helped in this flexible attitude to the regulations of the Society of Friends by their aunt, Deborah, because she seems to have been less strict in their observance than the girls' parents would have been. Deborah, for example, let the girls read a wider range of literature than their parents, and particularly their mother, would have sanctioned. And Mary describes how, when her mother came to visit, uh, to visit her daughters in their aunt's house, that she would hide the books um, under cushions so that uh, their mother wouldn't see what they were reading. So the way in which both Mary and Sarah kept diaries of their lives as teenagers, um, oh, sorry, I've done it again, I keep getting the wrong one. That's no, okay. It's, I'm used to my own computer and the forward button is in a different place. Sorry. Um, yes. So the way in which they kept their diaries as teenagers was also really another form of bending the Quaker rules. Because Quakers, like other Protestant dissenting groups, encouraged women to keep journals. And the idea was that you attended a meeting, you listened to what was being said, and then you went home and you wrote about it in your journal, and you wrote about your own reflections um, on what you had heard and what you had learned. However, whenever, if you look at the teenage diaries of both Sarah and Mary Shackleton, there's no religious reflection in them whatsoever. Mary um, and uh, Sarah instead wrote about what would be fairly familiar, I think, even to teenagers today. Um, they wrote about topics that uh, contemporary girls, I think, today would find uh, uh, familiar. Um, they focused on their activities and their conversations with other girls, particularly with uh, Quaker friends, because mainly their girlfriends, anyway, were 
uh, Quakers rather than anybody else in the, in the local village. They wrote about changing their hairstyles um, because they might as, Qua as Quakers have had to wear plain dresses, but there was nothing in the rules about experimenting um, with hairstyles, which they frequently did. And more and more, as the girls moved into their teenage years, they wrote about boys, particularly the boys that attended um, the, the school. Because they were, after all, the only two girls in a boys' school. And inevitably, they both developed teenage crushes on particular schoolboys, which they wrote about in their journals. Sarah's beloved, as she called him in her journal, um, lived in a house as a boarder near her aunt's house. And she's described in her journal how she regularly got up early and she would walk down the road to see if she would encounter the boy um, accidentally on purpose, so to speak, as he went to school. And then she would record in her journal if she had met him, um, if he had smiled at her, and if they had met later in the day. Mary also wrote about her friendship with two boys uh, in particular in the school, and Kevin O'Neill, as some of you may know, has written about that. Mary was well aware that her parents would not have approved of the content of her journal or that of Sarah's um, at this time. And she wrote of her fear of it being discovered. So she wrote, I dread my father catching me writing because her father uh, read all their letters um, and if he had seen her writing a journal, he would certainly have wanted to, uh, to read it. Or I dreamt last night that Sinclair, who was one of the schoolboys staying with his aunt, with her aunt, found this journal and carried it to my father and mother, which vexed me exceedingly. So there was, a, there was an awareness that they weren't doing quite the right thing in their, in their journals by uh, Quaker standards. Mary also wrote in her journal about the games that the boys and girls played when they got together. Deborah Carlton, their aunt, was frequently ill with what seems to have been migraine headaches. And she often went to bed early, leaving her teenage charges to amuse themselves downstairs. And again, as Kevin O'Neill, the uh, American historian, has described, there was a surprising amount of physical contact between the teenage boys and girls, which often involved the girls sitting on the boys' laps. This might be interpreted as harmless horseplay, but some of the games that the teenagers played went, I think, a little bit beyond the sort of behavior that the women's meetings would have sanctioned. One of the most popular um, games with the teenagers was called Questions and Commands, which I think is very close to what we would call uh, today truth or dare. Um, and the questions which uh, Mary recorded in her journal would not have been out of place in a, in a game uh, today. So, for example, um, in, she writes in her journal, I had asked Elsie when they were playing this game. Elsie was the boy that Sally um, was particularly uh, fond of. I had asked if he was a rose, who would he have to pluck him? He said Sally. She commanded him to kiss her the next time. Playing questions and commands 
with Jack and Sally, Sally being Sarah, I should say, with Jack and Sally, Jack commanded me to kiss Rainer, another schoolboy, which I was obliged to do. One of the boys uh, who attended the school was Samuel Grubb from Clonmel. And after he left the school, he returned to Ballytor to court Margaret Shackleton, the older sisters, uh, in about 1770, I think. Margaret's two younger sisters, who were only teenagers at the time, they watched with fascination as this young man came on regular visits to court their sister. Now, much of the courtship was done under the watchful eye of Margaret's parents and her aunt. Parents would come to dinner and the aunt would supervise them uh, at other times. But again, after her parents had gone home and the aunt had gone to bed, Mary recorded how the young couple availed of the existence of two parlours in the house to spend a great deal of time unchaperoned uh, in one of the parlours with the door closed. In 18th century Ireland, conduct of the advice books, sorry, in the, in the late 18th century Ireland, conduct or advice books giving guidance to young women on how to behave in society were increasingly popular. And kissing boys sitting on their knees or spending long periods of time together, uh, unchaperoned alone, would certainly not have been approved of by the authors of these texts. And as I say, nor would it have been approved of by the women's meetings if it had been brought to their attention. So looking in summary at this teenage stage in the girls' lives, they were quite flexible with the Quaker rules and surprisingly less restricted in their conduct, I think, than might be assumed. Um, in many ways, um, you could argue that they had more freedom in their relationship with the opposite sex than middle-class girls of uh, other denominations. So when Sally and Mary move into their late teens and early 20s, there is a definite change in the tone of their writing. By that time, Sarah had stopped her journal. And although she wrote many letters, particularly to Margaret, who by that stage was a married woman living in Clonmel, um, Mary continued her journal, but she did begin to do uh, the right Quaker thing, and she included religious reflections in it, although she still maintained a, a record of her daily life. So for some years, she divided her journal into two parts. On one side, page on one side, she would um, write about the Quaker meetings she had attended and her reflections on them, and then on the other side, she kept up the, uh, the record of her own private domestic life or everyday life. Mary married relatively late. She was 33 when she married, and Sarah never married. So throughout their 20s, Mary and Sarah were single. And during this time, they did become very engaged um, in the uh, Quaker church organization. And I know many people here will be familiar with the organization of Quaker meetings and the hierarchy, but for those of you who aren't, just explain it, hopefully, accurately. Um, so there was a meeting in the local village, Ballytor, and this is a 
picture, I think, of Ballytore Meeting House. It was twice or sometimes three times a week in the local village. And then there was a monthly meeting in Carlow um, that all the sisters um, went to. And then there was another quarterly meeting in Leinster and the Carlow, Mon Carlow monthly meeting would send representatives to the quarterly meeting in Leinster. Uh, and that would move around different places. So it could be somewhere like Eatonderry or Enniscorthy or Mount Mellick. And then in Dublin, there was a, a yearly meeting. It was twice yearly up until the early 1780s. And then it became a, a yearly meeting. And again, all of the quarterly meetings around the country would send representatives to the Dublin meeting. And what would happen at these meetings is that there would be a general meeting of men and women, and then it would divide into men's meetings and women's meetings. Um, and sometimes the um, uh, women would have a separate room, or sometimes there would be a sort of uh, temporary partition put in the room between the men and the women so that the women could carry on their business independently of the men. And the Shackleton sisters were in great demand as clerks at all of these meetings, and they frequently represented the different uh, uh, meetings at the different levels. Um, they were, of course, um, very well educated. Um, and um, as Gay Ashford mentioned the last day, although a lot of Protestant women, including Quaker women, were educated, it didn't necessarily mean that they were fluent writers. They were taught to read the Bible, but their reading skills could be better than their writing skills. But this didn't apply to the Shackleton sisters because they had been uh, given a very good education, as is clear from their letters. And this is why they were frequently in demand as clerks. And Mary, in particular, um, gets a bit frustrated sometimes about this and tries to resign at different times. Um, but her, her resignations are, are usually ignored. Um, the, I should say, too, that these meetings, um, particularly as they're described in Mary's um, journal, are very social events. Um, and in particular, the Dublin yearly meeting, the tone of her journal almost lifts when she's describing going to Dublin, because she usually went for a week, um, and she would go to all of the uh, Quaker meetings, but she would also use it, and, the, and a lot of the Quaker people who went would use it as a time to catch up. So there would be, you know, social breakfasts with everybody coming together. There might be then visits around to Quaker families living in Dublin, having tea with them. And then there would be um, a big dinner in the evening. Um, and again, there could be 20 or 30 people at these dinners. So it was a social event within the Quaker community. But Mary also made use of these uh, visits to Dublin to catch up with the boys uh, who had been at her father's school. Um, so they were fellows in Trinity or soldiers returning from uh, serving on the continent or men serving in the, in the Dublin Castle administration. And she would meet up with them and try and catch up uh, with what was happening. And through um, her contacts, um, she was able to go places where there wouldn't have been many women. So she several times made visits to uh, uh, Trinity College being shown around by the fellows and uh, being shown particularly the Zoological Museum um, in Trinity uh, College, which she was um, very excited about. 
Historians of uh, women in Quakerism have noted too that single women in the Society of Friends were not under the same pressure to marry as women in other religious denominations. And instead, uh, which is why Mary perhaps didn't marry until she was 33, but instead they were encouraged to take on an active role in the society. And Richard Shackleton, the girl's father, was uh, particularly keen that his daughters play an active role within Quaker um, activities. And ideally, I think he would have liked both Margaret and Sarah to become visiting ministers and to travel around and um, be evangelists um, for the Society of Friends. He didn't put the same pressure on Mary. Mary had a, a speech defect. She had a, a stammer. Um, so it was difficult for her to speak at meetings, which she describes in agonizingly detail in her, um, in her journal that her attempts to, to speak sometimes ended up with her shaking with uh, um, embarrassment and fear. Um, so difficult was it for her to speak. So she wasn't under the same pressure um, as her sisters were um, to, get, to get involved as a, as a, a visiting minister. But Richard Shackleton did really press his uh, youngest daughter, Sarah, um, to take an active role. Sarah never actually took on the role of traveling minister, but she twice accompanied other women ministers around England and Ireland. For safety reasons, uh, women ministers traveled in pairs, um, and that's why Sarah offered uh, to accompany uh, two women around um, England and Ireland. So her journal for her travel in, in the 1790s um, has survived when she was a companion to a visiting minister called Sarah Taylor. Sarah Taylor was an American woman who came over on this sort of visiting minister ministry project um, to, um, to speak to meetings um, all over England um, Wales and Scotland. So the two women met in Dublin and then they took the boat to Hollyhead. And then as, as um, Sarah describes her journey, um, you get some idea of what was involved. They travelled through Wales, the Midlands, into the north of England, then up into Scotland, back down into southern England, and then they came back up to, uh, to Liverpool where uh, Sarah Taylor Took, the, uh, took a boat or a ship back to North America. They would travel between 10 and 30 miles a day, and they would then stop at villages or towns where there was a local Quaker community. Um, and they would be put up by a family, or if not, by uh, staying at uh, an inn. And Sarah Taylor would then speak um, at different types of meetings. She would speak at family meetings, she would speak at a regular Quaker community uh, meeting uh, in a locality, and also she would speak at larger public uh, meetings, which would be attended by non-Quakers as well as by members of the Society of Friends. And as she noted in her diary, the two women would often um, attend up to seven meetings a day. They usually traveled from one place to another by horse and cart, and a man from um, the local Quaker community 
when it was available, would sometimes accompany them from one town or village to the next, and then they would be handed over in a sort of relay system to another individual. But other times they would travel alone. The roads, as Sarah wrote in her journal, were often bad, and the weather was cold or wet. She kept a careful record of the distances that they traveled in this uh, journey, and she estimated that they had uh, covered uh, over 8,000 miles uh, by horse and cart by the time she, uh, she left Sarah Taylor at the boat or at the ship in, uh, in Liverpool. So Sarah, in undertaking this journey, looked like she was uh, embracing the single woman's role within the Quaker community and making it her life mission to do so. So the next step would have been probably, instead of being a companion, that she would have been a visiting minister. However, her journal tells a different story because Sarah clearly didn't enjoy much of the travel that she undertook. She found it difficult to speak at meetings, as many women did. When we can praise their, um, the, the Quaker community for allowing women to speak, but that doesn't mean that a lot of women found it easy. But even when Sarah developed the confidence to make a contribution, she confined it, confided in her journal that she wasn't convinced of the purpose or effectiveness of some of the meetings that her companion had organized. In particular, she disliked the large public meetings which uh, non-Quakers attended and which Sarah Taylor was very keen to organize and to speak at. So Sarah Shackleton described, for example, a public meeting in Wales where most of the audience were Welsh speakers, but Sarah was speaking to them in English. At another large meeting, she noted that people stood at the door rather than coming in and participating in the, in the meeting. In other words, people were curious at the novelty, perhaps, of an American woman preacher, but they weren't anxious to be too closely involved and so stood back cautiously at the door. Sarah did not, therefore, share her companion's evangelical zeal. And she often recorded in her journal how tired she was accompanying uh, Taylor, who she noted in her journal at one stage, never tires. And when she said goodbye to Taylor in Liverpool, um, she wrote to her sister Margaret and said, Sarah is very diligent in her calling, frequently visits families, and has those tremendous public meetings. These public meetings are particularly trying to me. I seem unable to have faith that they are ever to much purpose. ST, that is Sarah Taylor, is a good example, whether I follow it or not. I shall often think of her. And in fact, Sarah didn't follow the example of Sarah Taylor. She returned to Valley Tor, and she really settled into a more traditional role as a single woman. She spent four years caring for her mother, who by that time was in the advanced stages of dementia, so it was a, quite a hard thing to be doing. And later she spent a lot of time on, on charity work, and in particular providing um, herbal medicine for the poor in the village and the surrounding area. This was a tradition begun by her aunt Deborah, and it was continued by 
both Sarah and her sister Mary. She still remained, however, a questioning woman. Several times in her letters to Margaret, she notes that she queried some of the things that were said at meetings. Um, and in 1810, uh, for example, she said that at the Carlo uh, women's meetings, she was told by the elders at the meeting uh, to remain silent and not to speak at all. I don't know yet what exactly she was saying to upset uh, the authorities in Carlo, but I do think it's, a, it's an indication of her independence of mind that she wasn't just passively accepting things or passively accepting her role as a single woman um, and possibly with a, less, a lesser status than a, than a married woman. The Society of Friends expected, however, both married as well as single women to attend meetings. And they even uh, approved of married women becoming visiting ministers. Margaret Grubbs or Margaret Shackleton Grubbs, uh, mother-in-law, for example, um, was a visiting uh, minister. But after they married and had children, both Margaret and Mary do write about how they were torn between staying at home to care for their children and attending meetings, and in Margaret's case, wondering if she should become a, uh, a visiting minister, at least in, in Ireland. Now, Geoffrey Watkins, Geoffrey Watkins Grubb, who wrote a book about the Grubb family, he documents that, um, that Mary did become a visiting, sorry, that Margaret did become a visiting minister for a short while, and that while she was away, two of her children died, and that that made up her mind um, not to um, uh, leave home again. Um, but I haven't been able to document that, so I'm not sure um, um, what age the children were because in the letters that I'm seeing, she's staying at home with very young children, and it's not until her children are considerably older that she begins to, uh, to travel more with, within the Quaker uh, uh, network. Mary didn't become engaged, however, with Quaker organization um, after she married. But she did um, find time as a married woman to, uh, to write, even though she had six children, although one of them died in very sad, sad circumstances, but Mary was writing all of the time. The village of Ballytor was on the, uh, the mail coach route, uh, and the mail coaches stopped in the village, dropping off post, but also uh, passengers, who often spent the night in an inn, which Mary's husband, William Letbetter, established, and Mary took on also in addition to her other responsibilities, the role of postmistress in the village. But running an inn brought Mary and William into contact with many people um, from outside the Quaker community. And some of these people, when they learned of Mary's um, writing skills, um, they encouraged her to publish her work. Um, and it was out of these contacts um, through the inn that Mary published um, or wrote her, her, probably her most famous book, a well-known book, which is called Cottage Dialogues. And it was published in 1811. Um, it was a very popular book, and it was really a dialogue between two servants. 
uh, Rose was presented as the ideal uh, servant who saved her wages for after uh, she got married. Um, she made her own clothes. Um, she didn't um, take on the role of a, a wet nurse, which um, uh, Mary Ledbetter thought she would be. If she did, she might be endangering the, the life of her own child. Nancy, by contrast, was probably more like the reality of many um, Irish servant girls at the time, in that she moved constantly from one place to another or one house to another. She didn't save any money and she bought her clothes in the fair rather than, make, rather than making them herself. Um, and um, she couldn't understand why Nancy uh, wouldn't want to make the money that you would make if you had your, uh, if you were a, working as a, a wet nurse uh, to a wealthy woman, because it was quite a, a lucrative form of engagement for uh, for uh, women who had just become, who had just given birth to to their own uh, children. Cottage dialogues, and I, and I would urge you to read it if you're interested. It is available online, and it's a very accessible um, text. And I think this is why. Um, it was uh, so popular. There's no reference to any religion in it. There's no reference to Quaker beliefs, for example. So the success of the volume, I think, was partly due to that. But it was also due to the fact, as you can see, that uh, Mary, Mariah Edgeworth wrote, um, or offered to write, a notes and a preface to it. And as you can see, Mariah Edgeworth's name was put on the front cover. And Mariah Edgeworth was over here, I think, on the in one of your, um, I think she's the third woman, is she? Over, over here, she's a, yeah. Forgot there was one portrait I could have had. Um, she was a very well-known Irish woman writer at the time, um, and having her name on the book obviously increased uh, sales. So um, Mary, Mary Ledbetter was delighted that through her contacts at the inn that she was able to get Mariah Edwards' name on the book, but her enthusiasm waned a little. Um, afterwards, because uh, Mariah Edgeworth wrote really a far too long um, introduction and notes to the volume, um, and she referred very patronizingly to this little volume uh, in the, in the uh, introduction. However, it didn't harm the sales, and it went through four editions during Mary's lifetime, and she also wrote a number of companion volumes of uh, dialogues between husbands, of Rose and Nancy, and also between landlords. However, her greatest literary achievement, I think in her own eyes, was not her dialogue books, but what became known as the Annals of Ballytor, um, because she was keeping a, a record in her journal of daily life in the village, and her plan was to turn this into a sort of literary portrait of village life. She used to correspond with a man called George Crabb, uh, who was an English poet, who wrote uh, poetry about village life in an English village. And I think Mary had the idea that she would do something similar in prose for an Irish village. So it was an innovative, an innovative and interesting idea. But she never quite finished the manuscript. And um, she was adamant that she didn't want it published in her own lifetime. She was said to have been concerned that it might upset some of the people she described in the text who were still alive. But a later edition 
was published by her niece under this title of The Lead Better Papers. And she, uh, the niece included in it her correspondence with George Crabbe, this poet whose work she admired, and a woman called Minasina Trench, who was one of the women that she met, or one of the contacts that she met at the inn, and had encouraged her to, to write cottage dialogues. Mary might also, however, have been concerned that the publication of such a major literary work, um, which focused on the secular as opposed to the religious life of the Quaker community, might have upset some of the authorities in the Society of Friends. And from time to time in her journal, she notes a hesitancy in the Quaker community about her literary ambitions. So even her father said, Moses would never have become a leader of the Lord's people if he had devoted himself to honing his poetic skills. Um, in the Carlow Women's Meeting in 1786, some of the women told her that they were thinking about her and thought how much more useful I might have been had I not devoted my talents too much to other things, that is, to writing. And just before the publication of Cottage Dialogues, Anna Shannon, who was another senior member of the Carlow Women's Meeting, recommended that let better not encumber myself so much with writing. So I think there may have been a hesitancy on her part with um, the views of the Quakers if this very large book had come out without reference uh, to religion. And she did follow this up with writing, a, publishing her father's uh, letters and biographies of the um, of prominent Quakers. And I think that sort of maybe have ameliorated some of the disquiet that there might have been, that she wasn't putting her writing skills to uh, the use of the, uh, the Quaker community. By Mary Ledbetter's lifetime, um, the women writer, as in the case of Mariah Edward, was um, gaining a new respectability. And I think if she hadn't been a Quaker, Mary probably could have been more well-known than she actually was. Um, and I think it's possible to detect in her journal um, and letters a sense that she couldn't engage in that new world of letters of women as much as uh, she would have liked. So in conclusion, the three Shackleton sisters, I think, did take their membership of the Quaker community very seriously, and they participated in a very active way in it. But what also comes across reading their journals and their letters is that they didn't follow the rules of the society in a rigid or unthinking fashion. These were educated, independent-minded, and thoughtful women. And they weren't afraid to speak their minds or to shape the rules um, to suit their own particular circumstances. So, I finished.